there is a stigma that accompanies mental health conditions. We use the words like crazy, psycho, nuts, some of those negative things. We say them in jest, but when you really think about it, words, words hurt. And so a lot of the stigma uh, surrounding mental health in, in the ch church culture is deep-rooted. But there is no shame in having a mental health condition. People need to realize, and I, it's hard for people to, to understand that there is no shame. The true shame is not getting the treatment you need to have a good life. One in four Americans suffer from some kind of mental illness in any given year. According to the National Alliance on Mental Health, on mental illness, sorry, many look to their church for spiritual guidance in times of distress. Most pastors seldom use the pulpit as an avenue to speak on mental illness because they feel ill-equipped. They don't believe that they have the correct tools. A recent study of faith and mental illness by Nashville-based Lifeway Research, also co-sponsored by Focus on the Family, looked at three different groups in, the, in this multiple-part project. It includes surveys. They surveyed 1,000 senior Protestant pastors about how their church approaches mental illness. 355 Protestant Americans diagnosed with an acute mental illness, either moderate or severe, bipolar or schizophrenia. Among them were 200 church attendees. 207 Protestant family members of people were also diagnosed with a mental illness. Now this is a study that they did and they concentrated on this group of people. The researchers also conducted an in-depth interview with 15 mental health experts on spirituality and faith. The study found that pastors and churches want to help people. They want to help people that experience mental illness, but those good intentions don't always lead to action. They want to help, but guess what? They don't have the tools to help, so there's no action. There are key disconnects revealed in the summary of the findings, such as few churches have plans to assist people with mental illness. Few churches are staffed with a, a counselor skilled in mental illness. There is a lack of training in leaders on how to recognize mental illness. There is a need for churches to communicate to their congregations about mental illness and where they can find those local mental health resources. Last but not least, there is a stigma and a culture of silence that leads to shame. And that's where I want to talk about today. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, depression is one of the most common mental disorders in the United States. In 2015, 6.7% of adults experience at least one major depressive episode. That is about one in 20 adults. 
David Murray in his book, Christians Get Depressed Too, has cited, cited evidence that this could be as high as one in five people that experience a mental health crisis. St statistics may vary depending on where one looks, and one thing is clear, depression is common. Whether in the church or out of the church, depression is common. So we ask ourselves, what is depression? Depressed people don't go, all, go around all the time looking like they're sad and, and have a long face or they're crying at any given time. The DSM-5 outlines the following criteria to make diagnosis of depression. The individual must experience five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of those symptoms should be either de a depressed mood or the loss or interest of pleasure. Depressed mood most of the day or nearly every day, there is a remarkable, you can say there is a very intentional lack of pleasure in anything that they do. You know that they are not having a good time at all. They lose weight, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical activity. They don't want to get out of bed. They don't want to do anything. There's fatigue, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, the ability to think or concentrate, and recurrent thoughts of death. People think that if you have a recurrent thought of death, that that's not really depression, that's suicidal. Well, it is a suicidal thought, but it also can be because of you having these thoughts and these feelings of depression. To receive a diagnosis of depression, these symptoms, symptoms must cause the individual significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, and other important functions of their life. The symptoms must, not, must always not be a result of substance abuse or medical condition. Usually sometimes when you say uh, that you're depressed, it's, people are saying, well, are you smoking? Are you drinking? Are you... Are you, are you, you know, using marijuana? You know, they think, oh, that's because you're doing all these other things. That's why you're depressed. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's a, it's a medical condition. The latest edition of the DSM also added there are two specifiers to classify this further with mixed features. That means that this specifier allows for the presence of manic symptoms as a part of the depression diagnosis in the patient. It also has a anxious distress. This is the presence of anxiety in patients that may affect prognosis, treatment options, and the patient's response to them. Clinicians will need to assess whether or not the individual experiencing depression also presents with an anxious distress. Depression can also often be mixed with other health problems, long-term illness, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia. Clinical depression has surged to the epidemic portions right now. It's in our classrooms, our boardrooms, and most of all, it's in our churches. At any one time, it is estimated that more than 300 million people 
have depression. That is astounding. That's about 4% of the world's population, according to the World Health Organization in 2015. Women are more likely to be depressed than men. While rates for depression and other common mental health conditions vary, the U.S. is the most depressed in the country, most depressed country in the world, followed by Colombia, the Ukraine, Netherlands, and France. What causes depression? Things have improved since mental illness. Uh, we believed it to be because you were possessed of the devil when it, you know, you're in the church. I used to always hear, you're not praying enough. You're not spiritual. There must be sin in the camp. Who's ever heard of that? There's sin in the camp. But there remains a widespread misunderstanding of this illness, especially when people say, oh, just buck up. Just get over it. Just shake yourself loose. A contrasting opinion is provided by psychiatrist Tim Cantopher's book, Depressive Illness, The Curse of the Strong. He argues there is a part of the brain called the limbic system that acts like a thermostat, controlling various functions of our body, including our mood, and restoring equilibrium after the normal ups and downs of life, the limbic system is a circuit of nerves transmitting signals to each tr transmitting signals to each other via two chemicals serotonin and adrenaline of which people with depression have a deficit according to this description depressive illness is predominantly a physical not mental illness Cantopher says that when under stress, weak or lazy people give in quickly. This is, his, this is his opinion. Strong people keep going. They redouble their efforts. They fight any pressure to give up, and, and so they push all that away. However, there is no scientific evidence to support this theory, as it is impossible to experiment on live brains. Other commonly agreed causes or triggers are past trauma or abuse, a genetic predisposition to depression, which may or may not be the same as a family history, life stresses including financial problems, bereavement, chronic pain, illness, taking drugs, all of that can lead to depression. The subject of much debate, there is a school of thought that severe stress or certain illnesses can trigger an excessive response from the immune system, causing inflammation in the brain, which then turns into depression. While there are more and more treatments for depression, the problem continues to rise. According to the World Health Organization, from 2005 to 2015, cases of depressive illness increased by nearly a fifth. People born after 1945 are 10 times more likely to have depression. It is reported that one in 10 Americans are affected by depression. 
over 80% of people who are clinically depressed are not receiving treatment. The number of people diagnosed with depression increases by 30% every year. An estimated of 121 million people around the world suffer with depression. These statistics are staggering. It's not getting any better. And we as the church need to do something. In 2013, 4,100 people, suicides were reported, making suicide the 10th leading cause of death for Americans. In 2013, someone died by suicide every 12.8 minutes. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Those are words from the 19th century pastor theologian Charles Spurgeon who personally understood the silent, unnamed pains of depression. People, are, people of faith are not immune to mental and emotional suffering. The psalmist even cried out. He said, darkness is my only friend, Psalms 88 and 18. Many people in the churches relate to this ongoing sense of loneliness. We suffer in silence in the church. Each Sunday, as a pastor invites people to follow Jesus, the church should also be ready with, us, with resources to have an open and honest dialogue about mental illness and to establish itself as a safe place to come and bring their brokenness. The lack of training has intimidated some church leaders. While they want to help, they are not sure sometimes what to do. They are not sure sometimes what they're even dealing with. They don't know how to treat people that are suffering even with depression or any other mental illness. People suffering and facing mental illness issues we need to view mental illness holistically. Much of the stigma related to mental illness begins with the notion that this suffering is a spiritual problem, that is it a personal result of sin. Ed Stetzer notes all suffering is the result of sin, but the suffering of mental anguish is not reserved only for people who intentionally do evil things to rebel against God or hurt other people. Sometimes people who love God suffer due to physiologically disabilities beyond their control. So instead of assuming every mental health problem is only spiritual, we need to provide a biblical framework for a holistic view of mental health that does not shame the sufferer, that does not shame the person that has this illness, but instead it encourages them to pursue spiritual, emotional, and physical health. We should be a hospital. We are supposed to be a hospital where they can come 
We also need to make mental health a part of the conversation. The dark cloud of mental disability is no laughing matter. People that suffer are often misunderstood. They're isolated, they're silenced, even in the church. Pastors and church leaders should lead the way to create environments for respectful dialogue and equip the congregation to speak grace. That's where we have a hard time to speak grace into the life of that person that is suffering. Pastors should model this in the pulpit as well in private settings. Dr. Steven Gersovich writes, when leaders talk about mental illness during the weekend works worship services, they communicate to the church body that people with mental illnesses are valued and they grant them permission for members and attendees to talk about it. Mental illness must be removed from the taboo list and welcomed into the congregation as a conversation. And sometimes I think that we're trying, we, we want to, but sometimes we don't know what to do. And that's why we need to equip church people, pastors, lay counselors, leadership with the tools that they need to help their congregation. Invite mental health professionals into the ministry. Many people who suffer with mental illness naturally reach out to their pastor for help. That's the natural thing you do when you're in the church. In a 2017 article by Sam Ogles in, entitled, What Pastors Need to Know About Mental Health, Ministry, and Liability, he referred to a study by doc, Dr. Matthew Stanford who found that while pastors want to help, 80 to 90% of them are ill-equipped. They have zero training when it comes to dealing with people who suffer from mental illness. Pastors and churches can provide real help to people dealing with a wide range of emotional stressors and relational, relational challenges common in marriage and family dynamics, for example. But most pastors are not, they're not prepared to address those issues. Mental illness issues that, you know, they can't address those issues as like they couldn't address a broken bone. They're not equipped. They're not a doctor. At that point, it is wise for a pastor to invite a competent counseling professional into the ministry process. Biblical counselors, whether on church staff or in an independent practice, not only understand the mind or the emotional aspects of, of, of mental illness, but they also can teach the person with the mental illness, how to apply the Bible and to trust the Holy Spirit. Introduce mental illness into the ministry plan. Give me one second here. Uh, 
from the design of the physical space to volunteer training to expectations of attendees. Pastors and congregations can create an environment where people numbered among 50 million Americans suffering with mental illness have a greater opportunity for wholeness and health. To create that environment. Church programming often presumes a particular behavior or response from attendees so pastors and leaders can plan services that give people freedom to respond according to that particular bent. While church volunteers cannot possibly be, possibly be aware of every mental health diagnosis, churches can build ministry teams and train volunteers to identify mental challenges and to adjust ministry practices that better serve the people of God. And I know I'm, I'm giving you all of this and it probably sounds daunting that all of this, we, we, we need to do some of this or all of this, but it can be done. There are resources out there that it can be done. While church volunteers cannot possibly be aware of every mental health diagnosis, churches can build ministry teams and train volunteers to identify challenges and to adjust ministry practices. We can also encourage churches to adopt a mental health plan. He notes that even the building, the decor, the sounds, the smells, the seating allows uh, adults and children alike to better connect and grow into that community, into that ch church culture. Developing pastor practices in a church environment that welcomes people who struggle with mental health issues requires awareness. You have to be intentional and you have to use wisdom. But every effort a church makes both great and small, offers new hope and practical help to silence the people that suffer in shame. We, we as the church need to stand up and make our place available for people that suffer with mental illness. To suffer in silence, to suffer in, in shame, to go to your pastor or people that you love and them tell you, I don't know how to help you. But instead of saying, I don't know how to help you, I have these resources and you say well I'm saved but I'm depressed it's okay it's okay to be saved and depressed because there is a God that there is a God that can help us there is a God that have given people 
and a mind to have a conference like this to give us the tools that we need to give us the resources that we need so that we don't have to suffer in silence. So that when someone does come to us, someone does and comes to the pastor, he doesn't have to say, I don't know how to help you. He can say, oh, I have this resource. I have this minister on staff that can help a minister uh, or a place in town we can refer you to. I have a case study that I want to read. I have to find it here. I thought I had it in front of me. Let me try to find that. You can we pause that while I look for it? Can we do that? No? Let me try to find it. He said we don't have to, but I have a case study of a young lady that I would like to read. I thought I had it here in front of me. I don't. Go ahead. That title came to me um, when I was asked to well, I, when I was asked to to present. Um, it came to me because I'm saved, and I was depressed. I've been saved a long time, since the age of got the Holy Ghost when I was about seven. And I'm not going to tell you how old I am right now. <laughs> I, I'm up there. <laughs> yeah, 21. And there have and and when the church that I grew up in, it was taboo to talk about depression. It was taboo to talk about mental illness. So you know, you stuff, you keep things in. You're like, okay, well maybe I'm not praying enough. Maybe I'm not reading my Bible enough. But um, a couple of years ago when we made a big change, a big move from the Midwest to California, you said, thank God. Things uh, begin to change in my life. Uh, I have three children, and by that time, two's in college, one's in high school, husband's working, I'm here, I have, I'm like in a house by myself, I'm thinking, what? What am I doing here? I didn't want to move in the beginning. So that was a uh, that was a stressor to move and leave all my family. But then you I started internalizing things instead of speaking out about how I was feeling, how I was and then things started happening in my life. I got a diagnosis of um, blood clots and uh, my daughter got a diagnosis of lupus. My son got a diagnosis of leukemia, and you think to myself, I think I was thinking to myself, God, why is all of this happening? What is going on? And I just begin to internalize. I begin to just go into myself. Okay. It's 
And so I, um, I realized that I myself became depressed because I, I don't know, I, I, to, to be honest with you, when it happened, I didn't know what it was. I really did not know what it was. I just thought I was sad. I really, I just, okay, I'm sad. I'm at home by myself. My kids are here. My husband's there. I'm just, I'm sad. But then when it started to be change my, my attitude, when it started to affect my mood, I knew something was, was wrong. Something was different. Something was not right uh, when it started affecting that. And when it, made me, when it made me go into, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to talk to people. I, I didn't want to do a lot of things. And so I realized then, and my husband is not my therapist. He's not, and he can't be, and that's wonderful. But he started telling me, he said, Tina, something's wrong. S something is wrong. He said, you need to talk to somebody. And of course, I'm like, I don't know. What, what if people think that something's wrong with me? If, if I, what, what, what if people say that, oh, well, she, she's supposed to be saved. How can she be de be depressed. So what did I do? Kept it to myself. I kept it to myself and then the Lord revealed to me, you are depressed. You, you need to talk. You need to talk to someone. So of course I didn't go to a therapist and I, it's not, I'm not saying that I don't go to a therapist. I think you should. But what I did was I began to find a trusted friend. Somebody that had the background to speak into my life. You have to be careful who you let speak into your life. So I began to talk to a friend and I began to tell her uh, something's going on. This is what's happening. And I realized that once I surrendered and stopped being ashamed of saying that you're depressed, when I realized that this weight just lifted off of me. Let me see if I can, is Joe can take this? That weight lifted off of me. To say that, yeah, there are some things that need medicine. I'm not saying you, 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 you can't take medicine. But I thank God that I didn't have to. I probably should. <laughs> I probably should. But I, I, I didn't. And, but I realized that once I begin to speak, once I begin to vocalize, once I begin to address and to own my own situation. God allowed me to find resources and people to help me with that. I think I have my case study, yes. So I'm gonna read this case study, maybe. Do I have it? It's not here. I cannot find that case study. I saved it last night and it is not on here. but I'm gonna try to do it by memory. There's a case study, her name was Stacy. She was 25 years old and she was a church goer. She was a pastor's wife. She um, had two children and she came from a family that was very religious. Um, I don't know her, it didn't tell me her denomination, her background. 
but he just said that she was a churchgoer, pastor's wife, came from a family that was very religious. And she said she woke up one morning and she felt this heaviness on her chest. And she thought, she, she really thought she was just short of breath. And she said for a couple of days it was like that. And then it would just lift and go away. Then life got busy. And she said it got to the point to where the heaviness turned into fatigue. The heaviness turned into racing thoughts. It got so bad and she hid it from her husband and her children. It got so bad that she, because she said, I, I go to church, this cannot be, this cannot be. And she said, something is wrong, but I don't know what it is. It got so bad that her, she tried to commit suicide. Her friend stopped her from committing suicide, took her to a hospital. When she was in that hospital, she said she was so ashamed of being in a mental institution because she was saved. I'm a church person, why am I here? What are my parents gonna think? She didn't even wanna call her parents. She was already afraid of talking to her husband about it. He was wondering, why are you here? What happened? He didn't even know she tried to commit suicide. Because she hid it, she just kept stuffing it. So then she said when she was in the hospital and she went through these battery of tests and assessments and they were asking her history, come to find out she had to finally talk to her parents and find out that both her parents dealt with mental illness that she did not know about. And her parents were pastors of a church. When she found that out, they delved a little bit deep because she said, we realized I, when I, after talking to my parents that we never talked about it because we don't talk about that in the church. You pray about it, that's what you do. And she said, after talking to my parents and they revealed a lot more things to me, her uncle was schizophrenia, had schizophrenia, and her um, grandfather also had a mental illness. She realized that all this for 10 years, she said this was a culminating of 10 years, and she realized that she kept all that stuff in her and hid all of that because of the stigma of what the church put on mental illness when she could have been free. She said, so now I realize that it's okay, and she said, and I take medicine. She said, and I realize that it's okay for me to take medicine. It's okay for me to love God. It's okay for me to be a Christian, and I deal with this. She said, it was something that I realized that I have to tell other people about. Because I have, she goes, am, am I healed? Am I, am I delivered? A am I, you know, cured? No. She said, I suffer with depression. She said, but it doesn't have me. She said, now I have tools. She goes, there's been years that I could have had those tools. And I didn't have those tools because I didn't reach out to anybody. She said when it first happened, when she first got this heaviness, she reached out to her church and her pastor said he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to send her. So she just kept doing it on her own, kept doing it on her own. And she didn't want to tell her husband. She just kept doing it on her, own, on her own. And her husband didn't even say anything to the pastor. The pastor didn't even say anything to the husband that the wife had come to him about that. She said now. It's open dialogue. We talk about it all the time. She said, because I suffered in silence when I didn't have to. And she said, now I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate, and I go around, and I talk to churches, and I talk to people. I talk to women's groups, and I let them know, it's okay. 
She said, because it's me. This is so funny, the part that I thought was hilarious. She said, it's me, Jesus, and medication that keeps me going. <laughs> and she said, there's nothing wrong with that. She said, we have to take the stigma off of being ill, having a mental illness. And she said, there's some mental illnesses that you do need medication for. Doctor, God gave us doctors. God gave us people to help us. And so I want to challenge us as a church. You know, I see some pastors in here, some lay ministry, that we should go back. And if you're not a pastor, or if, or if, and if you're in leadership in your church or wherever, and, and let your pastor know. There's tools out there. Some of them just don't know there's tools out there or, or it hasn't touched their congregation yet. Or it has touched their congregation, but it's so big that they don't know that it's out there. But I feel like if we, as the hands and the feet of Christ, could go into the churches and tell people that it's okay to be saved and depressed. I mean, and I love, I love what she says. She goes, I'm depressed, but it doesn't have me. She goes, I'm not depression. She said, yeah, sometimes it, it, it gets overwhelming. She goes, but I now have the tools to know what I need to do. She goes, I didn't have the tools before. So I thought it was, it was me. I thought it was me. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought I, in my mind, she said, I thought that because I was maybe wasn't praying enough, I'm a pastor's wife, you know. I should, I should you know, I shouldn't be like this. We have to take that stigma away from people. We have to take that stigma away from people. And it's easier said than done. Because guess what? It's been around a long time. That stigma has been around a long time. We have a friend of mine, a uh, pastor's wife in Louisiana, jumped off a bridge a couple of, couple of months ago. And I knew them. And I, think t I said to myself, did, did I, were we in a, a good enough relationship to where she could have called me or her? I knew her husband more than I knew her. But I'm, were we in a good enough relationship? Was I out there enough that where he could have called? Or where he could have, you know, someone else? What, what happened? Where was the disconnect to where she thought that life was so bad as that pastor's wife? that she would leave three children, young children, and a husband to finish pastoring a church by themselves. Where was the disconnect that that was so bad? Or what about the pastor that he's such a suicide advocate a couple of months ago here in California, suicide advocate, went home that day after preaching and speaking a young person's funeral that committed suicide. He was an advocate. He went home and did the exact same thing. Where's the disconnect? What are we doing as a church? Where, where are we not connecting? Where is that missing link to where we can link up arm to arm and shoulder to shoulder and help people? I pray that God would open our eyes to show us where that disconnect is at and where we can step into that gap. There is a gap somewhere. And I don't know if it's because churches don't have enough resources or if it's 
just too taboo for some to even want to tackle or if they feel it's too much for them to tackle. I know there are pastors, I was reading an article where he confessed and, and, and it said, I, just I was just hiding my head in the sand because I didn't want to deal with it because I didn't know how. He said, I figured that if it's that bad and, and, and God is a helper and he's given grace, he'd send somebody else to help them. We cannot think like that. Because guess what? The next person is thinking like that. They're thinking, oh, God's going to send somebody else to help them. So if we all down the line are thinking that, guess what? That person is not getting any help at all. So where do we step in? What do we do? How can we be the hands and the feet of Christ when it comes to that? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. And we need to reach out to people and let them know this this study that I did, it talked about pastors using the pulpit more and more to speak about mental illness. And if we could do that, wow. If we could use, we don't have to do it every Sunday. But even if, if they also talked about once a month having a mental awareness month, mental awareness day in the church. Not on a not on a weekday, on a Sunday, where people, because on here on, at our church on Sundays, in the morning, it's evangelistic, so we get a lot of visitors. That's when you need to do that. Because the visitors, they don't come on Tuesday night Bible study, Wednesday night Bible study. They come on Sunday morning. They don't even come Sunday night if you have a Sunday night service. They usually come Sunday morning. And that's when we need to do something like that. Mental health awareness just so people will know, oh, that's that church where we can go and, and they have tools for us. I think that's all I have. I went to, I, is there any questions? Sister Scott. You brought up a, a really good point about the pastor who himself was an advocate. Um, when, when there are lay members like yourself, myself, um, it's really important to have um, some accountability or some self-care because this can be become so overwhelming. And in his case, having to deal with that every day and then to actually see someone who completes, the question becomes, is my work, is my work worth working? Is it worth what I'm doing? Or was I a failure in this? So we rally around each other, finding like-minded, so we can, we can be able to debrief, where we can get that off of us as we, and there's not enough of us that's doing it, so it's like, how do we find each other? It may be not in your own fellowship. Maybe that's an idea of a, in a district. Is there a district group that maybe can be that place where the caregivers in this area go to this group to debrief about the stuff that they have to deal with all the time at 
along with the challenge of the church as a whole. I know here in the SoCal district, our um, uh, district superintendent is uh, Pastor Art Hodges, and he has a saying, I don't know what it is, but it's like one week, one day a week you do this, one day a month you do this. He's, he encourages his lay people, all of our ministers here, to take self-care days is what he calls them. We also have retreats for ministers and their wives, our lay counselors, I mean lay ministry and their wives to go. Matter of fact, we're getting ready to go to Alaska in, in April, I think, March or April, we're getting ready to go. So, and that's gonna be a retreat for ministers and their wives to, to just decompress. And so there are a lot of things here, and I think that is so readily and neededly, it, it's, it's needed where people can go and debrief. Dr. Wilson, in our practice, we have self-care for all of our therapists that, you know, they're working so many days and then we have a mental health day to, the, to where we're, we do the office a half a day or something like that, or I'll bring in food and we bring in all kinds of different things and just sit and have a mental health day because you have to, once you, you're, as a counselor, you're, you're taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in. When do you get to, you know, there's a lot that you have to give back out. You have to be able to give that, because you won't be any good to anyone else if you don't do self-care. No other questions? Well, thank you for listening. Okay, okay. That's okay. Um, also, as, as we develop these um, uh, ministries in our church, um, uh, because the stigma is so huge, the need to um, impress confidentiality because, I mean, the stigma is already there. Um, is that just something that you vocally say, the lay ministry is committed to confidentiality? Or, I mean, is that something you say publicly? How do you make people know if you come, you're still protected, that you're not going to be, you know? So here at Family Worship Center, I don't know where any, if whatever anyone else does, but here, Dr. Wilson, because this is the church we attend and uh, our pastor has put us over family and marriage, we have a, a form that all of our lay ministry and people that are helping with counseling have to sign. And it's also something that uh, you as the counselee the person that's coming to get the counseling, you know that too. So that is something that you both get a copy of and you're held, the lay ministry is held accountable for that because we give them into your hands and we trust you. And so we need to know that we trust you and it's not something that, and 
Here we have some counselors that it's, it's just maybe the husband or maybe the wife that are doing that. And so that doesn't mean that you get to tell your spouse other people's business what you did, you know. Because so, Dr. Wilson and I are like that. Some people will say something, they say, oh, we know you know. And I go, no, I do not. I really do not. You counsel with Dr. Wilson. You did not counsel with me. The only time that I do know is if it's a marriage and family and I have been introduced into that situation. But if I have my own that I'm doing, that's me and that counselee. That's not me, the counselee and Dr. Wilson. <laughs> so that is something that, and there are forms, and we even have something if anybody needs resources to get things started in your church, forms like that, we can probably give you some resources to where you can get. I know Brother Sumner, you went through our late counseling and we have all those forms and stuff in there. Yeah. Anyone else? Don't be shy. I may not know the answer though. Okay, I think we're, we're done. Thank you, appreciate you guys. <laughs>